The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! everybody welcome back welcome back to episode zero the rocky horror picture show podcast where we don't really talk about the rocky horror picture show yeah my name is <laughs> what my name is william bibiani i'm a critic everybody calls me bibs I, I appreciate your experimental openings these days my name is whitney seibold i too am a film critic uh i don't have a nickname i'm just whitney seibold and because uh, uh, I'm not cool, the, you are the coolest. You, you host a Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast. That's like the definition of uh, cool. Thirteen so. year old you would be like, "That's awesome." Also, what is a podcast? Uh, <laughs> I finally dyed my hair blue. Like I wanted, wanted to since I was maybe eight years old. Did, did eight year old you want to have a nice fine beard with it as well? Well, I don't think eight year old me was thinking about beards at the time. Okay. Do you ever read sideways stories from Wayside School? No. You didn't? Oh, okay. no. It was a popular uh, children's book. Uh, it was published first in the mid-80s. Hmm. I think the mid-80s. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, each chapter was devoted to a different student who was attending the school, Wayside School. And the, the joke was they meant to build a long school, but there was a mix-up in the architecture, so they built a tower by mistake. So it was all classrooms on top of each other. That's fine. Uh, and... Got a lot of space should. around that, I imagine, because they had the geography of the school was already burned. Yeah, I imagine they got a lot of uh, a lot of, a lot a lot of, of play yard space. Well, yeah, Blue Creek is getting down to the bottom floor if you're on the top, mm-hmm. and that's that's all of recess right there. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. That sucks. Uh, unless you have parachutes or something. Ooh. But um, The egg drops must be fun at that school. Oh, heck yes. Uh, one of the, uh, the stories was about, and they're all like vaguely based on real kids, but one was about a kid who was like, really into horror movies, and he liked wearing like monster hands. Like rubber monster hands to school, and he had uh, like frizzy blue hair, like mm. gigantic blue hair. And uh, the story was about how he loved all this monster stuff to the point where he accidentally summoned the ghost of a dead teacher out of a chalkboard. Mm. And uh, the ghost was evil and wanted was like threatened the classroom. And at the end of the story, he said, "I'm not into this ghost stuff anymore. It's too scary." So he came to school, no monster hands, and he but he still had blue hair, but so, it was neatly combed now. So it was a tragedy. Uh, no, no, he was happier at the end. Okay. But uh, now that he's given up, the, like the, you know, the art that he loved, he he gave up the art that he loved. But he summoned unholy spirits. I think uh, just clean the danger. chalkboard. That's why you clean the chalk. That's why you use the clapper. The, You're uh, exercising the ghost when you clap the 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 erasers together. The, the, the point chalkboard. is, I I liked the image at the end that he had neatly combed hair, but it was still blue. So I thought I always okay. held that with me. I want I don't want punky hair. I just want blue hair. Okay. And now I have it. Congratulations. So. Yeah, my, my midlife crisis brought out an eight-year-old fantasy. <laughs> nice. Well, in any case, that is not what we're here to talk about, mm-hmm. even though we just did. This is the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. It's called Episode Zero, because here at Episode Zero, we like to talk about the prehistory of pop culture phenomena. The movies that are become so legendary that we sometimes forget to look back at the movies that inspired them. Because no movie exists in a vacuum. We previously spent 20 episodes talking about the films that inspired Star Wars. And uh, we are actually counting down. We've had, I think this is the 17th episode of Rocky Horror, Mm. episode zero. We only got a few left after this. Yeah, they, uh, these were intended to be finite. Yep. These episode zero uh, seasons. Yeah, we, we could go on forever, but it'll get redundant after a while. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we only have three more episodes of uh, Rocky Horror after this one. We'll talk about uh, what's coming up next at the end of the podcast. Uh, this time, however, we're talking about, and and this is kind of a big encapsulation uh, mm-hmm. episode. That's why we're talking about three different movies. Uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, is an awesome celebration of musical theater, mm-hmm. of queerness, of theatricality, and horror. And the horror genre has been constantly evolving since the dawn of cinema, uh, cinematically, and of course in all other mediums as well. Um, and the way that the horror genre has dealt with social issues, sexuality, 
violence has evolved over time as well. And the way the British have done it is really noteworthy and largely because of a particular horror studio called Hammer. Hammer, which had been in the studio before they started being known for horror films, started to recontextualize and sort of re-envision the classic horror movie monsters uh, starting mm. in the late 1950s. Uh, 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 the company had been around since like the mid-30s. Mm-hmm. But, and uh, making and, a little bit of everything on that, in that yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, one of their films is nominated for Best Picture mm. in the United States, uh, their Henry VIII movie. Oh, that, yeah. was, that was a Hammer production. Yeah. Um, the secret, the, 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 the Private uh, Life of Henry VIII. Private Life of Henry VIII. Yeah, early that 1930s. Was, that was a Hammer production. Um, yeah, but Hammer didn't... Hammer, as we refer to them today, refers to Hammer as they began in the 1950s. Yeah. Which is uh, specifically... I would say 1958 with the film Horror of Dracula. Yeah, that wasn't that's their first... Sort of, that's sort of like the flashpoint for what we refer to yeah. as the Hammer Horror And that wasn't movie. their first horror movie. They'd already done like The Curse of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. but The Horror of Dracula is the one that really kind of was a real firecracker and just absolutely just exploded all over the world. It made Christopher Lee one of the great all-time horror Draculas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's... Whereas the universal horror movies, which most of which are still great, uh, were very classical and very, uh, in many cases, very reserved. Not always, but in many cases. Uh, and they were, they were in black and white. They were these sort of ethereal, almost ghost-like presentations. The Hammer horror films were colorful, hmm. technicolorful, alive, bloody, full of, full of sex. As hmm. much sex as they could put in at the time, which was increasingly more sex as the years went on. Uh, they were uh, really heavily franchised. They got crazier and wilder as time went on. They started blending but, uh, genres. But they, uh, despite how salacious and bloody they were, they always uh, had with them an element of class. Yes. There was production in these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't, it, it, we're not talking about like Herschel Gordon Lewis, no. who was like a drive-in king who had no money and his only approach to getting his film's attention was to put as much blood in them as possible. No, these were these uh, movies had budgets, some mm-hmm. some more than others. They had respectable actors. Some of the best actors of the era yeah, were working on these. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, notably, worked mm-hmm. in a whole slew of these movies. Mm-hmm. But you'll also find noteworthy people like Oliver Reed, for example. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was the Wolfman, the only Wolfman movie they ever made. But Oliver Reed was in it. And that's a very sexy Wolfman. Because <laughs> it's Oliver Reed. Because it's Oliver Reed. Thank you for that Wolfman. It's a great wolf man. Uh, but uh, we're here to talk about uh, three of maybe not the most well-known Hammer Horror films. Among certain horror fans, this is a very well-known trilogy of films. But I think amongst the, the mainstream, the casual horror fans, not as popular. Uh, but a significant trilogy in the Hammer Horror genre. This is when uh, Hammer started to, now that uh, uh, censorship was loosening and they were allowed to be more... Uh, more sensual than ever before, have more nudity than ever before. Talk about more, uh, uh, more sexual topics. Uh, we're we're <laughs> they, talking. They could be openly gay. That's another be, big part of it. This yeah. is a this is a, a, not a consistently, but an openly queer fr- uh, horror trilogy from Hammer, and it predates the Rocky Horror Picture Show by only a couple of years. Uh, and indeed, uh, I think runs concurrently with the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll so we're get, talking, we'll get into that. So we're talking a bit about this as a flashpoint, yeah. maybe not necessarily as specifically an influence, so much as this is what was going on in British horror. And um, we're going to talk about uh, the films in the Karnstein trilogy, and we're going to cover them one by one, and we're going to start with arguably the best, mm. and I think this is one of the best vampire movies ever made. The Vampire Lovers. The Vampire Lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere. The unsuspecting merrymakers in glittering ballrooms with their young and tender throats. The sleeping beauties whose troubled dreams turn into real terrifying nightmares. It was a cat! A huge cat! For God's sake, save her! Uh, 
loosely based on uh, Carmilla, uh, an early vampire novel by uh, Sheridan Le, Le Fanu, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's um, Jay Sheridan Le Fanu. Jay Sheridan yeah. Le Fanu uh, wrote a, a novel called Carmilla back in the 18... Pre Dracula. 1872. Yeah, predates Dracula. And it's a pretty explicitly lesbian story mm-hmm. about uh, a female vampire who seduces other women and, uh, and turns them into vampires, mm-hmm. uh, turns them to the dark side. And this is, uh, sort of like, uh, the melodramatic version of that. It's the, uh, the Saturday matinee version of Carmilla. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't follow the Carmilla story so much. It's not so, spooky or scary as it is uh bloody and exciting well what it what it does is it caters to it, it, it this version harkens back to the old school dracula storyline specifically the part where dracula comes to, to england although this takes place in austria but this is part where dracula mm-hmm. leaves his castle and comes into the modern world uh and starts insinuating himself into the lives of the gentry and starts seducing all the daughters. Mm. And that was very much specifically about things like xenophobia, uh, about uh, the worry about the corruption of youth, the worry, uh, uh, the worry about uh, you know, sexual well, when you, uh, when, exploration. That's yeah, when, what those fears uh, when, came to. When you so, say corruption of youth, you, you're, we're talking about sex. Yeah, we're talking uh, about this dude coming in, seducing your mm. daughters. And with Carmilla, they're taking mostly that part of it, where Carmilla, uh, she's played by the incredible Ingrid Pitt, uh, and she is a young woman, eternally youthful, and she basically finds her way in one household after another, gradually falling in love with, seducing, and sucking all the life away from the young woman of the house, while the old men of the house go, Oh, the daughter seems to be dying. Shame that. And like completely <laughs> oblivious to anything women are going on. They bring in a doctor, and the doctor's like, Oh, yes. She seems to be dying. Well, put a drop of port in her every night and make sure she eats a lot of red meat. That'll put her that'll put her to right. But let her take the air every once in a while. Yeah, like completely mm. oblivious or outwardly not caring about whatever is going on with women. They have mm. their own business. Meanwhile, women are left to their own devices in the household, and in that household, uh, Carmilla is able to exert her influence and bring about uh, a sort of uh, What's the word? She 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 is able to create this almost rebellious, you know, woman controlled atmosphere that, of course, the men are going to put a stop to by the end of the movie. Like, yes. oh, women women are falling in love with each other and taking over the household. We're going to stab them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like just just and there's there's this thinly disguised veneer of contempt like you can tell like the idea is that if there are men in the oh. story who there are men in the audience who would be like well we better put a stop to that they'll get what they Which, want because uh, they're they're dumbasses but everyone else in the audience is going like ha well this, awesome. this, this is in true spirit of exploitation cinema uh yeah. they try to lure in a lot of audiences um with uh this moralizing that yeah. all of the sin that we're uh, we're being presented with is eventually going to be defeated. Oh, yeah. it's, oh it's bad. It's, it's very yeah, bad. This, this is all very bad. But no, of course, of course, we're here to lick our lips at the actual depictions yeah. of that salaciousness. Uh, so yeah, it, it's this is what I, one of the things I kind of love about exploitation cinema is it kind of tries to play both sides of the fence, and it's always really weakly. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yes, we're we're actually here to see the sex and violence, but. Uh, Oh, oh no, but it's very bad. Like yeah. kind of whisper as you're on your way the, the, out. The, most films tend to mostly veer towards one direction or another. Either they they're, have some sort of moral message. They have a moral message, and in the in most cases, well, in a lot of cases, the moral message is ultimately veers rather conservative. We may enjoy the salaciousness, but at the end of the day, the bad guys or whoever is outside of the social norm mm. uh, is eliminated. And that happens here too. But this is one of the instances, the vampire lover specifically, where it feels a little insincere, where I really do feel like the heart and soul of the movie mm. is with uh, Carmilla, again, played by Ingrid Pitt, uh, and specifically the second woman she seduces, uh, Emma, played by Madeline Smith, uh, who she's very young and she's very mm. naive, but That's she true. is absolutely like brought into Carmilla's uh, spell and they and she brings about a sexual awakening in her. 
Yeah, I was kind of hoping that this film would be a little bit more slasher constructed mm. because it starts with Carmela, who is using uh, the uh, unbelievably clever name of Mirkala. I... Uh, that's that's her her disguisey name. Get it? It's, it's Carmela. It's an anagram of Carmela. Yeah. It's barely an anagram. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's like barely spoon- an anagram. It's spoonerism of some kind. It's like we dropped our Scrabble letters wrong and we went with it. Like mm. yeah, uh, but yeah, it, the first uh, maybe like 20 minutes of the movie is her just sort of laying out her MO. She moves in, she seduces a young woman, uh, bites her, drains the life of it, or moves yeah. on to another mansion. Yeah, it's always like, oh, uh, I was, I, I premiered at a fancy party, and oh no, I have nowhere to stay for a few days, or oh no, my 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 chariot, or the chariot, whatever, my uh, stagecoach, my stagecoach <laughs> hit a shoe. and uh, is in Rome? Shh. But my, coach. my point is that she needs some place to stay for a few mm. days and she ends up just insinuating herself into the household. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is a time, if you, if you watch that portion of A Lady on Fire, like, there were, like, companions for young women. That was just a thing that happened. Lovers. So, lovers. Yeah, okay, I kind of, you, you, and, you yeah. and I know that. But Peter Cushing sure as hell doesn't. Uh, Peter Cushing is such a good actor. Yeah, I don't know how clueless he actually was in real life. Because he, he's not ever going to like wink or break character. No, he's great. He wasn't that kind of actor. He played it completely straight. Yeah. So if if there was something kind of uh, like some queer coding uh, that he was supposed to be like in on, he's not going to let the audience know. No, because his character is no. oblivious. Yeah. His character has no idea. Uh, now, speaking of queer coding, there's no coding. They're just queer characters. They're very queer. Yeah. It's, there's um, a lot of, there's outright seduction. Yeah. There's, spe- there's outright speak of love. Yeah. And and uh, there's there's this wonderful exchange where uh, Carmilla is starting to get a little jealous of like uh, Emma's male suitors. And she's and it's like, well, why would you be jealous? Because I love you. And you're having all these men who might take you away from me. Oh, but that's totally a different kind of love. And Camilla's like, no. No, it's, it's actually, not. No. no, like I'm, 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 like, I'm literally I'm in, in love with you. In love with you. With yeah. you. I'm, and I'm a, a woman in love with Emma, you. And Emma, who's a little oblivious, is just like, oh, ha, 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 that's nice. And then they, no, they're no, totally in love. Yeah. <laughs> now let's go bathe together. Yeah. yeah it's like, yeah, there, there's, there's no, there's no, co- the coding here is... That of the moralizing. That yeah, we yeah that's the about. part that feels the, um, like the veneer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the, this idea that uh, we can have a queer character in this movie, an openly queer character who enjoys their sexuality, mm-hmm. if they're also a monster. Yeah, they have to be the villain. Yeah, they have yeah. to be... Uh, the, yeah. okay, okay, good. Yay, lesbian characters. Oh, wait, one's a vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this was pretty common, is to yeah. queerify monsters. And, uh, of course, that was something that Richard O'Brien would run with. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes, we're gonna have a queer monster. He's a transvestite from outer space. He, he's gonna make it a little bit more uh, over playful, a little bit yeah. more uh, uh, in your face. Uh, jo- he's kind of joshing it yeah. a little bit. But in the Vampire Lovers, Ingrid Pitt is yeah. Okay, she's the villain. She's a villain, but she's not like evil, evil. Like, haha! I'm gonna kill everyone she- in your household, and no one can stop me. <laughs> she's she's a tragic figure. She knows she's a tragic figure. There's a bit where, like, they overhear, uh, like, a funeral procession because people are mysteriously dying in the village next door. What are the odds? And uh, she's upset about it. She doesn't like the idea of death. She doesn't like the idea of living alone and lonely mm. her entire life, not not being able to die. Like, she actually does care about things. She does feel things. And her ability to sort of project her personality onto the world around her and make people who would otherwise, you know, because of the world in which they inhabit, because of the cultural uh, norms Mm -hmm. that they were taught, might not even consider whether or not they were queer, will just fall into it and Mm -hmm. actually, like, bring out uh, a a more modern sensibility in the world around her, which, of course, the men will have to destroy. Uh, That power... And I think that sympathy make her, yeah, she's still not great. She is killing people. But I think it make, gives her this heroic mm. or, or, or counterculture vibe where it's just like, this is the only thing she could be. Yeah, There's, yeah. She had no option in this world in which she inhabited but to be this. And we can sympathize with that and we can think that she's amazing. And I think she's an amazing character. I love Ingrid Benn in this movie so much. <laughs> she's, so, well, she's so much fun. Uh, Car- Carmilla is, is a great character. Um, 
because Carmilla is an overtly queer character, going back to the source material, uh, a lot of the film adaptations of Carmilla have sort of leaned into that. Yeah. And as such, they come across as a little bit salacious because most of them are made by men. And they're not celebrating the sexuality so much as they are uh, sensationalizing it. Uh, which is a pity because I would like to see a, a well, I, I was going to say a straight adaptation, but that's maybe the wrong <laughs> That'd word. Be an oxymoron, uh, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to see a, a little bit more of a, um, a dramatic, a little bit more of a classical interpretation of, of Carmilla. We kind of got it in a TV series we've viewed. For oh, yeah. Too soon. Shelley Duvall's Nightmare Classics. Nightmare the, Classics. That very respectable mm-hmm. half hour adaptation. Or maybe it was one hour. It was one hour out of ten, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was an anthology series where every uh, episode was based on a different piece of classic horror literature. So yes. there's a the, the, Jekyll the, and Hyde story. Yeah, Turning of the, the Screw, screw episode. Uh, and there was a Carmilla episode. The Carmilla episode and the Jekyll and Hyde mm-hmm. episodes of Nightmare Classics are very good. They're really, really good. They're really and, excellent short adaptations yeah, and, of those stories. And the, the queerness is there, but it actually like has a lot more like horror elements. It's a lot like spookier. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good episode. But you can, I, I you would can hear an episode to... of Cancel Too yeah. Soon all about that. Mm-hmm. You can also track it down online relatively mm-hmm. easily. If you grew up watching like Shelley Duvall's Fairytale Theater and you want to see what she did with the horror anthology, there's there's like four episodes and three of them are very good. Right. The, right. the Western-themed one is not. <laughs> it's just not a great story that they adapted, but what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, I, I felt like they were... Uh... They were running dry on classic horror literature even after like four episodes. I, I don't think they. Uh, I don't think that needed to be the case, but whatever. It, it didn't need to be the case, but that was the case. Uh, well, but yeah, uh, get get Celine Shiyama in here to do a Carmilla. Oh movie. my god! Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> can you imagine how cool that would be. My uh, god. Yeah. Um, the, the Vampire Lovers has had, I think, a, a, a pronounced impact on a lot of queer themed horror mm. movies. I think um, you can see its impact on everything from Interview with a Vampire. Uh, to uh, Kiss mm. of the Damned, which is a great film uh, directed by Zan Cassavetes, we talked about in a recent episode of your critically acclaimed. Um, I'm a huge fan. Uh, mm. This movie is great. It is definitely one of the great vampire classics. Yeah. Uh, it led to two sequels, which were not sequels in name only, because they're both talk about. Car- Carmilla is part of the Karnstein family, which is this recurring, um, not so much characters as they are roving plot points throughout this trilogy of films which revolve around vampirism and uh, seduction and queer themes, although that gets gradually diminished over time. Uh, So they all revolve around this family over different generations, but you don't need to see one to see any of the others. They're all just sort of swirling around a theme. So this led very quickly into a sequel, and that sequel was called Lust for a Vampire. Welcome to the most exclusive finishing school in Europe, where the quest for knowledge continues long into the night. You see, I have studied your magic. I know the black art, and I want only to know more and more. Here, the masters are quick to recognize an outstanding pupil. The portrait of Camilla Karnstein died 1710, 120 years ago. And do you know who the portrait was of, Mirkala? It was you. Welcome to the finishing school, where they really do finish you. Yeah. It's, it's bosomier and bloodier. And uh, it's actually... Um, That's again in, boring. In, I, I was going to say, <laughs> in, in terms of nudity, they actually got less nude as the series went on in terms mm. of the vampire stuff. Got uh, a little like bit a, more violent towards the l- end. Yeah. Though. Like, yeah. the third one's actually quite quite... Quite broad, quite uh, quite boring. Uh, yeah, the, the the third one is silliest. This yeah, this one is the most boring. Even though the most is going on, it's the longest of the series at a a whopping ninety five minutes. Oh, god, you uh, can feel it too. <laughs> uh, but this is about uh, what would happen if Carmilla were a resurrected and mm-hmm. b let loose in a girls' school. Mm-hmm. So it's basically Suspiria, but it's like meh, Spiria. Uh, and there's uh, my favorite character was actually like the the sniveling little. Was he a literature teacher? He was the, he was the English and history teacher at this oh, school. Yeah. He's um and he's um oh, he's played by Ralph Bates, mm. uh, who is just a fun actor. 
Uh, he, he was he he's was really great in this. One. He was in a, he was in a really he was in the same year as Lust for a Vampire. He was in another uh, film called Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, oh, which yeah. also has some very explicit queer themes in it. It's a really good movie, actually. Mm-hmm. It holds up really good uh, for for the time. There are things you oh, could do uh, now that couldn't do then. By the way, the first film was done by uh, George George Ward Baker. Uh, Roy Ward Baker. Roy Ward Roy yeah. Ward Baker. I'm actually quite um, a fan of. I think he's a very yeah, good who, who did a lot of uh, uh, Hammer films. Uh, mm-hmm. He also. So did some like prestige mm-hmm. pictures earlier in his career. Yeah. Lust for a Vampire was directed by uh, Jimmy Sangster. Uh, Jimmy Sangster, who did Horror of Dracula. Yeah, he actually kicked he, off this whole nut. He was a he was a Hammer regular, and mm-hmm. so you'd think maybe this one would have a bit of class. This one's weirdly stodgy, considering just how prurient the premise is. The premise is this: mm-hmm. uh, Carmilla is resurrected. The opening resurrection scene is actually pretty cool. They put like a blood on a skeleton, mm-hmm. and like she like turns into flesh, and then they, of course. Mm-hmm. The clothes just fall right off of her because this why not? Is, um, uh, a scene that would be quoted rather heavily in the uh, second Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh, uh, yeah. That started also with the uh, resurrection of Lilith in a Good very call. similar way. Good call. Um, and uh, But then, uh, well, we've got Carmilla back. Cool. Now what do we do? I don't know. Girls' school? So they put her in a girls' school because she We're, still looks like she's like a teenager. They put her in a girls' school where all of the girls are already gay. Yeah. There's no seduction, like lure, no. luring them over to quote the dark side. There's like this one it's... bit where like where their headmistress walks in and like like we're oh I'm sorry we were being very gay. Uh, we'll yeah, stop. We'll pause out of respect <laughs> and then you will leave. We're... And now we're going to be, be very gay again. Yeah, we're, we're naked to the waist and giving each other shoulder rubs. Yeah, yeah, nothing queer going on here. No, no, it's it's pretty explicit. But that it actually takes a while to get to that because before. Mm. Right after Carmilla is uh, resurrected, which is the first, I don't know, five minutes of the film, then we meet this fucking piece of shit asshole <laughs> who's like one of the worst, one of the worst mm. fucking protagonists I've seen in a movie, and I can't even remember God. Ah, mm. It's played by a guy named Michael Johnson who I'm not super familiar with. Uh, and um, he's a, he's a writer. Michael Johnson. Yeah. Oh, my God. He's a writer. He's, mm. uh, he's in this local town in Austria to write and be rich and uh he, he's kind of he, like sort of this obnoxious like the worst parts of a james bond movie kind of vibe to him. yeah like but none of the good parts of the james bond yeah. movie just all the just all the condescension and 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 sexism uh and he just walks in and he's like oh yeah so i'm here in your town perhaps to seduce your women and uh the people who run the tavern it's like ordinarily we'd be fine with you seducing your women have at you but um lately there have been a lot of vampires so if you wouldn't mind not doing that i think it would be best for everybody if nobody had sex until the vampire thing sort of blew over and he's just like vampires that's a stupid thing i'm going to investigate the local vampire castle Karnstein castle and he goes to Karnstein castle and he's surrounded by a bunch of sexy vampire ladies except they're not vampire ladies they're just teenage girls and then he is escorted by uh, Ralph Bates as the sniveling uh, uh, English teacher to, it looks like a joke. It looks like a Mel Brooks routine. They like walk up to this <laughs> building and there's a bunch of women on a staircase mm. and they're posed like they're ready for someone to say action on a musical mm. number, but no one ever does. Mm. And, they're, and they're wearing diaphanous see-through dresses yeah. and... And it's, it's and it's, it's like it's Castle Anthrax. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. literally Castle Anthrax. It's it's this thing that only exists to titillate men, and specifically this one dude. And this one dude, who's again an adult man, sees this like boarding school for young women, and decides he's going to be a fucking creep. And so what he does is he he finds the uh, well. I mean, there was no other choice at the time. I suppose <laughs> that's what you do is just. Be a creep. Be a monster. Mm-hmm. And uh, he finds out that there's a new English teacher. I'm sorry. The, the, yeah, there's a new English teacher coming to town. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the guy, he wasn't an English teacher. He was the history teacher and he taught art, art and history. Mm-hmm. There's a new English teacher coming to town. And uh, the English teacher wants to be a published writer. And uh, our, and I use the word a hero. Uh, Prota- actually, I don't protagonist. use the, protagonist. Yeah, let's, let's scale back on hero. Protagonist kind of. I wish I don't want him to succeed in any of his goals. Um, he says, "Oh, I need to help with a project of mine. Would you please go to Vienna and research vague things?" And he says, "Fine, I would love to." And now, unfortunately, the school has no English teacher. And the guy tells the headmistress, "Oh, yeah, sorry about your English teacher. He just left all of a sudden. I don't know why. Uh, you wouldn't happen to need an English teacher to live in this 
boarding school for young women, do you? And she's like, yes, I very much would. Could I hire you on the spot? And he's like, only if I get to live here and be creepy. And she's like, fine. And uh, he starts like just being a fucking horrible creep. Meanwhile, Carmilla is seducing young women and like killing mm. them. Uh, and the the sniveling uh, English teacher has uh, because he's observant, mm-hmm. uh, and and he's he's sort of asexual. Like he's not uh, mm. not really into any of the young girls. Mm. Um, he he doesn't really read as queer either. Um, but he's noticed that uh, the a that there's hanky panky and he doesn't really seem to care, and b that Carmilla is a fucking vampire. Yeah, <laughs> like it's kind of hard to miss. And indeed, after she's killed some people, he was disposing of the bodies, and initially. Mm-hmm. What you think is, oh, he's in on it with her. Like, he's her, like, her Renfield or whatever. And it uh, turns out, no, he just wants to be her Renfield. Mm-hmm. And he actually encounters her and says, I must see, I must meet you at the cemetery at midnight. Blah. And she's like, oh, that was a weird performance. And then they meet he's in like, the cemetery. He, he does a great, he would have made a great just straight up Renfield. Oh, he's great. He's yeah. Ralph Bates is giving his all. He's the, he's the MVP of this movie, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. And uh, he goes there in the, in the woods and he's just like, yes, I know you're a vampire. And I think that's great. Could I please be a vampire? Could I at least be your understudy? Could you just tell me all about Satan? What's Satan really like? And she's just like, ugh, uh, oh, I bite I you, but I don't with, want you around anymore. Like I can't deal with this shit. And so she kills him. And now, uh, uh, and then she starts being seduced by Michael Johnson. And here's the part where I start like completely losing this movie. A, I hated this guy to begin with. B, that. Carmilla's going to stop being queer for this guy? For this guy. For this fucking guy. A, bullshit. B, this guy? They never use the word bisexual. Carmilla could be bi. I realize that, but this guy sucks. Uh, But this guy sucks, I agree. And and the story gets really ridiculous. And to, uh, you know expound more on our, like, Python and uh, Mel Brooks uh, references... One of the students dies, and her body is buried, mm-hmm. and they wait a couple days before they even tell her father. Yeah. Like, not that she was like she was sick or fallen ill, please come quickly, come save your daughter. Your By daughter, the way, yeah. she died and we buried her. Yeah, yeah and, <laughs> and he, sh- he shows up, he's like, my daughter's dead, and he's American, my daughter is dead and you buried her without telling me? And the old, like, headmistress of the school, like, she's giving a Cloris Leachman type of performance, yeah. just like, I, w- well... I mean, yeah. She's but... in her own movie. She's in a movie yeah. where all she's trying to do is keep this school afloat when oh. weird shit keeps happening. And it's always like, oh, one of the girls is missing. Oh, well, don't tell anyone. Why? I mean, that's that's a comedy movie right there. Yeah. Like, this is like... Everyone keeps dying at this school. Everyone, di- yeah, everyone dies at this school and she's like, oh, shit, shit. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell all anybody. My mo- she says, all my money is sunk into the school. Just don't tell anyone. <laughs> Everyone's dying. <laughs> See, that'd be great. Great, great horror comedy. But there's right no there. wit to it. There's no. It's no, not well, she, funny. She's funny. She's trying. Uh, yeah. No one else is. No one else is putting in the in the stuff. Um, so yeah, he's the dad comes in and he wants to like exhume the body and everything, and she's like, "Oh no." Um, what what frustrates me about this movie, besides the fact that it's actually really kind of a slog, like it takes like a really long time mm. for Carmilla to start even killing anybody. Like it's just a bit of a. A bit padded. I mean, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of nudity, and I think that's what they're hoping is carrying you this whole way. Yeah, I don't. I, no, I'm sorry. I need, a, okay, I need something ca- to happen. Ca- cast your mind back before you could get porn accidentally on your telephone. Uh huh. To when uh, seeing breasts in media was uncommon. I appreciate. You, listen, you needed, you needed appreciate, much more much more complicated avenues as breast delivery. I appreciate systems. that sex is of interest. Mm. That sex sells. That sex can be very fun. Uh, I also appreciate that it's a movie and I want stuff to happen once in a while. And I'm getting a little bored with this one. Mm. Um, but uh, so the, all of that's really, really frustrating to me. But the thing that frustrates me the most is because from the point where Carmilla, and the reason why I bring this up, you say that maybe Carmilla's bi or pan, and probably mm. that makes a lot of sense. But like from that point on, the queer uh, uh, aspects of this trilogy start to wither. Yeah, and it's really frustrating that from that point on, once she and because it's hard to shake the implication that what this movie is saying is once Carmilla met the right guy, mm. which is some bullshit, yeah. well, uh, the, and the, that's and I just I just reject it. I just I couldn't help it. And this like well, you, it just and back, it, it pissed me off. Going back to the first one, this sort of otherizing of queer people into monsters, yeah, uh, was which was, is well, what very much Rocky Horror is about. Well, it's, well what, what, what Rocky makes him monstrous? He's 
he's he's Frankenfurter. Yeah, uh, he's. <laughs> I mean, Rocky Horror is clearly sending that up, but yeah, it's it it's also internalized in a lot of queer cinema, yeah. not just the Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you look at uh, a lot of the uh, films of John Waters, mm. uh, with you know, especially uh, Multiple Maniacs, mm. uh, Pink Flamingos. Uh, female trouble and um anytime where uh, divine is allowed to be like unlikable yeah well divine divine often played like sort of uh, by john waters own description played monsters yeah Uh, john waters described uh, divine as godzilla Mm. like just stomping through everything and destroying it and having a great time doing it Mm. and um so John Waters is making these kind of wild monster movies about this wild drag queen that he knew and uh is using that monster narrative that was being uh, fed to young queer audiences that, you know, if you're queer, you're a monster. And he is saying, okay, Which is well, if, if that's true, I'm going to put it in my movie and I'm going to gussy it up and make it fun. And yeah, we're, we're, we're fucking monsters and we're going to fucking own the world. We're going to make it power. Yeah. yeah. He's trying to put power into, into that monstrousness. And that's definitely what Richard O'Brien was doing yeah. with Frank Inferno. And I see that in the vampire lovers, but I don't see it in lust for a vampire. No, that's and yeah, it's it, it's it's receding a lot. They're using uh, they're they're using the queerness kind of just as a lascivious maneuver now yeah. for a straight male audience. Yeah, uh, it's it's all it's all about the male gaze. It's not really catering to any kind of queer sensibility. Um, I, I can't imagine there are a lot of lesbians who are a big fan of this one. Uh, I I don't. This one uh, doesn't know, have I, the traction that yeah. I, that Vampire Lovers does. Generally mm. speaking, in my estimation, if mm. anyone is is a huge fan of this one, if we're missing something on this. Mm. We'd love to hear it. Please email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. If this is like more popular than we are aware for reasons that perhaps are lost on us, we would love to hear yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, the, but um, enough with Lust for a Vampire. It ends with Carmela dying. Great. Uh, no, um, and everything burns down. Everything burns big, down. Big, it's, huge fire and all of the characters come together. And torches. And, and, yeah, yeah. The, all of the villagers figured what's going on. So yeah. it's actually a very dramatic climax, which mm. I find completely boring. Yeah. I, I don't, a little, a little yeah, familiar. it's like. Mm. Uh, to be fair, I think the I think the climax of the Vampire Lovers is one of the weaker parts of the film. Because it feels like the story ends and there's like this big coda mm. where we go back and we have to defeat her. And it just feels a little tacked on, mm. but whatever. The movie's still great. Uh. And then the third film uh, in the Karnstein trilogy, uh, which I had never seen before, and I'm glad uh, I took the yeah. time because I had actually a lot of fun with Twins of Evil. They look alike. They dress alike. Two identical beauties. But one of them has the very devil in her. For you, all pleasures should be supreme. These are the men they call the Brotherhood. Seek out! The devil worshippers by burning them. And this is the sister who is about to enter the devilhood. Look, what do you see? <gasps> we are the undead, immortal. The devil has sent me twins of evil. Twins of evil from. Uh... 1971. So same year as Lust for a Vampire. These movies yeah, all came out within so, like about a year and a half of so each yeah, other. Yeah, 18 months. We got three movies in the same series. It was the marvel of its day. <laughs> uh, it was directed by uh, John Hoff, and it stars a pair of uh, identical twin Playboy playmates. So we're not even pretending anymore. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they're they're uh, Mary Collinson and Madeline Collinson. Yeah. They play identical twins. They're young girls. Who um, I think they're they're orphaned and they're going to live uh, with their extended family. One of whom is I believe an uncle played by Peter Cushing. And Peter Cushing, and this is actually a prequel to the other films, takes place before the other two. Um, Peter Cushing uh, is a religious zealot who every night it's like you know like the the loyal order of water buffalo and the and the Flintstones where like. Fred Flintstone every night would go put on a stupid hat and hang out with his bros and like drink beer and play bowling. Uh, Peter Cushing does that, except uh, they put on uh, creepy robes and go out and go witch hunting like every night (laughs) and they would kill people every night and it would be considered fine because it's in the the name of religion. Yeah, the... uh... A lot of movies do this and it is unbelievably disrespectful to go back to Salem or the time of the witch hunts mm-hmm. and posit that witches are real and yeah. that the Puritans were actually in the right in that uh, reinterpretation of the narrative. Uh-huh. 
or right, rather or, than just or, a bunch of men murdering teenagers. Well, the, it's frustrating because a lot of people want to do that storyline because to say that like you no know, women were actually like or or even the, or the ostracized, whether it's uh, mm. hocus pocus or nightbreed well, it's, or whatever, it's trying to give power to the victims. I understand. It's attempting that, to give yeah. power to the victims, and I think in most versions of that, they ultimately are outright giving power to the victims but implicitly Mm. what they are suggesting is that when christians were saying these people are supernatural that they were at least right about that part and Mm. that it wasn't religious mania and that and that lets a lot of christians off the hook it lets it puts them on the hook for something fictional and takes them off the hook for the real thing that happened which is that's what sucks which is worse because it's real yeah um so I that part I, sucks. I, I understand why it's done, uh, but yeah, I think it's also really disrespectful. Um, but yeah, here we have uh, Peter Cushing leading up this big uh, band of Puritans, all these stern pilgrim-looking guys in a big hall, and he's he's and definitely the, the bad guy in this. And it's actually pretty rare to see Peter Cushing play the bad guy in a Hammer film, so this mm. is pretty cool. Uh, he's he's the bad guy, but he's also the Van Helsing, which is a little odd. It's a weird. And, it's and a he actually, weird. And he literally here. played Van Helsing in, in Horror of Dracula. Yeah, uh, and many other films. Like uh, did, I think it was in like five or six. He played Van, Hel- he played yeah. Van Helsing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's he's a wicked character, but he's also sort of like one of the protagonists, uh, and they actually get to see he and his fellow Puritans sort of like gathering around saying, who do we murder next? Yeah. Who's suspicious? Who yeah, do we I, think is in league with the There's that one devil? lady who lives on the outside of town. She's weird. Yeah, let's get her. Like it's that, it, there's nothing more to it. Mm. It's not more complicated than that. Yeah. It's a bunch of men deciding which women mm. they decide they don't like tonight and try <laughs> to kill them under the justification of religion. Mm. And I appreciate them being that direct about it. That is actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, <laughs> how's, how, who do I hang? How's about old Lady Greenshaw? Oh, no, we hanged her yesterday. Yeah. Uh, the plot is these two young women, they're going to live with Peter Cushing, and these two young women are from a more urban area. They're from a more modern, uh, their culture has more modern mm-hmm. sensibility. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. even just as soon as they get there, they're told you have to change your clothes. They're, they're too modern. They're too, you know, we can't do that now. Like, uh, you should be wearing black anyway. Your parents decide. They were like, it was months ago. And like, you need to be wearing black. But we didn't wait. We didn't bring any black. Mm. So they're already aware, both of these young women, that uh, they're going to be oppressed. This is going to be an oppressive environment. They're both dreading it. And they're particularly concerned that their uncle is going to be very abusive, which at least emotionally and culturally he is. Mm. Uh there's also in this yeah. town Karnstein yeah. Castle. Yeah. Me- meanwhile, Count Karnstein mm-hmm. uh, was played by uh, Damian Thomas. I almost called him Damian Lewis. Uh, yeah. Damian Thomas, who, who I, looks I, like Jimmy Fallon if he was playing Dracula. I, I swear I've seen him before. I think I've seen him in some BBC productions. As well. Oh, he was in something big actually. Hang on, he one was, of those um, um, very prolific uh, British actors. Uh, um, and he uh, is indeed in league with the devil. He's doing devil shit up in his castle. Yep. He's like sacrificing people and openly seducing people and looking for power from Satan himself through he's got, satanic practices. He's got like a, a, like a butler who's responsible for entertaining him at dinner. And the butler's like, well, I brought in these Satan worshippers to do a to do a Satan worshipy thing. And this Count Karnstein is like, well, that's not Satan worshipy enough for me. So he kicks out the Satan worshippers and decides to just try to invoke Satan and stab the woman himself, mm. which actually does it works yeah and satan shows up and like carmilla shows up and they make him a vampire um and uh yeah now he's gonna do vampire things meanwhile one of the twins uh becomes a little fixated on karnstein castle and decides that this is her way out of this puritan to to marry count karnstein yeah who's who is the one person in town everyone knows isn't up for this conservative religious shit and she goes there and it turns out he's quite evil but he pretty much immediately turns her into a vampire i kind of like the um I kind of like the, the their version of the vampire myth in this, which is if a vampire bites you and you're not a bad person, mm-hmm. you die. If a vampire bites you and you were kind of a shitty person, you turn into a vampire. Like if you, if you, were, right. you were already like on the road, road to hell, mm-hmm. then you become a vampire. Otherwise, you don't. Like it's no more complicated than that. And I kind of like, okay, you know, I think it's okay. At least there's an idea. Yeah, and then it also Look, explains why there aren't a whole bunch of vampires wandering around feeling bad about what they're yeah. doing. You know, like they're the people who would go for it. I mean, all, all of the restraint, all of the horror, all of like the uh, the seriousness and the, the soberness of of the. Uh, 
of the vampire myths and indeed of hammer films in, gen- in general is just sort of gone here. Yeah. It's uh, the seventies. The yeah. movies are getting more, they need to get more violent and more sexy yeah. in order to uh, it, appeal to con- contemporary audiences. This is like the, yeah, the hammer's on its last legs for a while here. There's a lot of splashing blood in this one. And curiously, even though they hired playboy playmates as the lead actresses, uh, no nudity in this one. I think there's like really brief nudity, there's but like, like for like, like a second, so, somebody's wrestling in a nighty, and yeah, you know, and, there's and a bit there's of like, a, a bit like of fl- a flashes quick of nudity. Reveal. But yeah, there's, yeah, it's there's, not as sexy as you'd think. If you'd no. imagine you're like, oh, they got playmates. There's, there's going to be more lot of nudity. No, um, there's quite a bit of violence though, and uh, in fact, uh, Peter Cushing gets to decapitate someone, and it's pretty graphic. Yeah, his face gets sprayed with human, yeah. human viscera. It's, it's really. I guess really it's quite intense. Era. It's really quite intense. Um, but the, yeah, all, all of those themes of of queerness, mm-hmm. of subversion, of how fun it is to be a monster, are kind of gone here. No, the monster. Is the, I mean, the monster is like you know cackling, kind of wicked, but he's a, a caricature. Yeah, he, he's not an interesting uh, villain who is having fun with his lasciviousness. And the counterculture aspect, where we're giving power to the to the uh, to the disempowered, mm. um, it kind of falls by the wayside here because. Okay, look, the conservative Christian group is clearly evil, but even more evil is Satan, and that whole bit just gets kind of muddled. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing like positively empowering about Karnstein. He's just, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hedonistically evil. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, the, but, but what is actually pretty good about it, I actually do like kind of like the formal construction of it. It's a little obvious, but I do think it works. Uh, where... These are identical twins, one of whom has been turned into a vampire, the other has not. And when the evil twin is outed as a vampire, and Peter Cushing decides he has to kill his own niece or whatever, uh, she switches places with her twin Mm. so that they're going to sacrifice the good one on like a pillar of fire. And it's all a matter of we got to race against the clock to try to save him. It it works. It's a satisfyingly Mm. suspenseful ending and there's a lot of gore a lot of violence a lot of confrontation at the end and i appreciate it on a b movie like better than average pretty good production value the cast is pretty good hmm. level i appreciate it on that level I'm just on sort of filmmaking yeah. I, yeah and i also appreciate that the evil twin uh was pretty much just evil throughout yeah like she started out kind of kind of wicked and was willing to let her sister die yeah so yeah, that's I appreciate that that there wasn't some sort of like big change of heart at the end. Yeah, and I think and I think the Collinson twins are actually quite good in it. Um, mm. I think they do exactly what's required of them. I think they hold their own with some very good casting. You've got mm. Peter Cushing, you've got David Warbeck in here as one of the uh, one of the love interests. Like this is a this is a pretty solid production overall for Hammer in the seventies. Mm. Which again, Hammer was starting to. Hammer was the the name of the game, but then they started getting competitors like Amicus, and Amicus started to like push the envelope more in terms of violence and salaciousness. And Hammer couldn't quite keep up, and they tried, and they tried to become a little bit more like Amicus. And sometimes it worked great, sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, but uh, I don't. Did Hammer even make it out of the seventies? I think the last uh, thing well, they did for a long time, because yeah. they went on hiatus for like decades. Yeah, they came back for that film, uh, The Woman in Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they actually did, the first one they did was like some like rave from the grave, kind of low budget. Rave like, from the grave was a Return of the Living Dead sequel. Then there was something similar. Hang uh, on. I'm going to look it up. They, they, their first film back was not Woman in Black. That was their second film back. Let me look up the oh, first man. film back. Hang on. Brand name um, Resurrection 2007 to the present. Yeah. Beyond the Rave. Beyond the Rave. Actually, okay, no. I don't, it, I don't know Beyond the no, Rave. I'm actually, no, I got my timeline all wrong. They came mm. back for Beyond the Rave, uh, which was... Oh, my God. Wow. How dated is this? Mm. From 2008, a British horror film originally published on MySpace. Oh, my God. That's Ooh, amazing. That's, I got to track this thing down. That's a detail. Uh, and then they actually came up with... It was very respectable. They came out with that remake of Let the Right One In, Let Me In. Which I haven't seen. It's quite good. It's quite good. Is it? Do we need it? No, but it is a good version of that story. Uh, Then they did the Resident with Hilary Swank, Mm -hmm. and uh, Christopher Lee came back for that one. They did a pretty respectable supernatural story, Wakewood, with Aidan Gillen and Timothy Spall. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then they did the Woman in Black, which was actually quite a big hit. I um, actually also don't think it's very good. No, it's a completely forgettable movie, <laughs> and they made a, a sequel that's even more forgettable. Oh, Angel, Woman in, the Woman in Black colon Angel of Death is not good. I'm actually quite fond of the Quiet Ones. Oh yeah, which was it's, this oh, it's uh, a, a 
professor and uh, and his gaggle of students trying to track down ghosts. Yeah, and the idea is that they're being they're and this is a period piece, and they're filming themselves with like eight millimeters, so it's kind of a found footage, but it's also not. Um, it's not necessarily breaking the mold, but it fits the mold really nicely. Like it came out yeah, of the mold yeah. really, really pristine. Like I just think that's a good <laughs> solid three star horror movie. Deserved a little bit more dur- credit than during it got. during that. Uh, yeah. I guess we're still in that wave of, of haunting movies. And then they did that movie last year called The Lodge with Riley Keough, which um, I, I, I love that movie. That's I hated good. that movie yeah. so much. I, with that movie, that movie's message about mental health is fucked. Like it's in such mm. bad taste. But anyway, I'm 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 kind of alone on that. I, I don't want to relitigate I, I, I that right now. I completely disagree. I think it's actually very responsible. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. But anyway, I whatever. That's neither now is not the time for that. We did a whole podcast about it. Um. But, um, yeah, but this is, uh, yeah, this is Hammer trailing off a bit, but this was like a big, like one of the last gasps of Hammer being like on the forefront and relevant was the Karnstein trilogy, particularly the Vampire Lovers. Also see Captain Kronos. Captain Kronos kicks ass. (laughs) Captain Kronos is awesome. Please. It has nothing to do with the Karnstein trilogy other than it's also Hammer, but I do have an opportunity here to mention it. Please see Captain Kronos. It kicks butt. As, as Hammer was waning, their inf- they started to become uh, like a little bit more accepted as a, a camp outlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were known for just the, the blood and the boobs. Yeah, a lot of bustiers. Yeah, a lot of accentuations of, of the uh, chest regions. It, it was all very breast-centric. Yeah. And, um, oh yeah, oh, the, other thing, the other thing every Hammer horror film had, a scene at a tavern. Oh, of course, to, you had to have and, one uh, scene in a tavern where a bunch of so, British character actors are just like, I don't know if that, I, I don't know if that's tr- a don't trust the vampires movie. Yeah, there's, yeah. Oh, there's a gorgon in town. Damn it! <laughs> I don't trust it. Yeah, and then yeah. they go off. Oh. We, we people of the mountains believe, yeah, that vampires live in the castle. Bless them. Can you imagine having to write that scene like twenty times a year, like that exact <laughs> can, scene? Can you imagine being that actor? Like I the don't... one character actor would show up like as the drunk in every scene. Yeah. What a dream! What a treat! <laughs> It'd be like if every if every movie had a Mos Eisley Cantina scene. You'd just be like, "Why are we here? What are we doing here? This is, this is we got to do it. We got to do it." But uh, because of the sort of their more um, salacious reputation, uh, they started to be uh, proliferated for campy reasons. Yeah. Uh, I, I can imagine in the theaters, people were getting a lot more raucous. This was the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. People were bringing weed into theaters at the time. Mm-hmm. That's actually really significant. Uh, and really changed a lot of the popularity. You look at some of the movies that were popular in the 70s, and you're like, why? why? And then you remember, weed. Weed. You could bring weed into the theater. And, yeah. and, and it was 70s weed, which by uh, anecdotally I've heard was uh, a lot different from modern weed. I, I wasn't there, but that's the story. That's the yeah. whisper I heard most often, is that mm. it wasn't as potent. It wasn't as potent, so you could just like smoke and smoke and smoke and uh, like yeah. ha- just have a, a good strong buzz going without mm-hmm. being knocked on your ass the way, uh, from what I hear, from what modern I... weed does. Yeah, not a weed guy wouldn't know the difference. I, I, um, I am a weed guy, yeah. and I wasn't alive in the seventies, so I wouldn't know the difference. Okay, well, uh, but you can be sure that a lot of these Hammer films were leaking into the local uh, theaters of one young Richard O'Brien, who mm. was uh, probably watching a lot of these monster movies. And uh, was being deeply inspired to write mm-hmm. the Rocky Horror Show, which actually debuted uh, in 1973 mm-hmm. uh, in England in the West End theaters. Uh, Only two years after the Karnstein two, trilogy. Two years a- after the, yeah. the, the last Karnstein trilogy film. So you can see, so like, this is this, is, this the... is not necessarily a direct influence on the making of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it is right in line with this uh, British camp horror tradition. It's, it's setting the stage, I think, mm-hmm. for it. I think the, these movies in particular. In especially the first one, the Vampire Lovers, and its forthright depiction of queerness, um, and its uh, depiction of that in a genre setting, mm. and its success, sort of paved the way and made it easier to get mm. stuff like this off the ground, and made it easier for something like Rocky Horror to get a mainstream movie release. Still not a mainstream movie, but it was able to get like picked up by a studio. Yeah, and like say there's there is a Fox film. And and this is around the time that Fox was doing stuff like uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which we might get to. But like Mm -hmm. there's there's definitely a movement right now in this period of history, the few years leading up to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where something as odd, something as progressive, Mm -hmm. especially for the time, uh, and something as uh, distinctly 
uh, uh, counterculture as the Rocket Picture Show can be seen as potentially, wasn't, but potentially mainstream. Uh, We should also, uh, we would be remiss uh, to not mention Deep Throat, Mm. which came out in the the midst of all this. It was 1972 that movie came out. Oh, I thought it was later than that. Let me look. No, I believe you. I just, everyone who watches this mode on knows I'm bad with movie release dates. Yeah, uh, June 1972, Deep Throat came out. Um, yeah, and uh, Deep Throat wasn't just a popular porno movie. It actually brought porn into the mainstream the way nothing had in yeah. the same way before. There was a there was a uh, contemporary like public discussion about it, and people were like going to it and happy to go to it yeah. and talking about it. Yeah. Like, hey, I went see Deep Throat last night. Oh, cool! What did you think? Yeah, like people, would, like adults, would have conversations about the my, por- my, pornography. There, my consuming. parents were t- told me stories about, like, yeah, we went to see Deep Throat. It wasn't very good. Like that was <laughs> oh. that was the that was the conversation oh, my parents had about it. It's like, yeah, everyone was going to see Deep Throat, so we went. And I'm like, and I'm like, it's not a good film. I'm like, there's a, there's it's a, not actually. There's a really great, not a good film at all. <laughs> There's a, a, it's completely absurd. Uh, it's, of course it's, it is. it's a comedy film, but in the way uh, 70s porno comedy is comedy, mm. which, which is, is to, to say, say not. not funny at all. No. Uh, it's like, oh, we, we can actually, we can say fuck now. Oh, well, that doesn't make the jokes funnier. In fact, they're, they're worse now. Yeah. Uh, there's a really great documentary about Deep Throat called Inside Deep Throat. Uh, it was produced by Ron Howard. Um just about the history and the making of the um, movie and they caught up, with the, one, caught up with the people who were still alive who made it. Uh, they said it was making money so quickly they had to weigh the cash yeah. because it was faster than actually just counting it. Uh, so yeah, Deep Throat was bringing sex uh, into the mainstream in a really big way. Uh, and people were talking about eroticism and how uh, unsimulated sex acts will, might be part of a grander cinematic tradition. Um, mm-hmm. It was only a few years before that something like Midnight Cowboy was causing a stir so uh, and you know there's rumors stanley kubrick is going to make a sex film and it's going to have unsimulated sex in it it's just going to be part of the art now yeah uh didn't happen no uh but there was a big push for a while and there was a lot more eroticism uh, just sort of a little bit more um openly proliferating throughout popular culture and i think the rocky horror picture show was surfing that wave pretty hard yeah um and not and not to be lascivious or anything, but I do miss that mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of modern popular culture. Uh, the four quadrant film became really really popular at one point mm-hmm. uh, in recent history. Four quadrants that means it appeals to uh, young, young audiences, young old, young old male and female, or the four quadrants. Yeah, which um, is a very reductive way of looking at yeah. audiences. But, but the idea is, if that, you can, but that's the way studios were looking at yeah. audiences. And the idea is, if you have a film that appeal that can be shown to. Kids and adults, and both kids and adults will like it, and mm-hmm. both the um, masculine, traditionally masculine, traditionally feminine audiences will both like it, uh, then they'll all want to go see it, and then you'll make more money mm-hmm. than if you just made a movie that only appealed to adults and kids couldn't see it because it was like too mature, yeah, or yeah. that kind of thing. So the, um, the PG-13 rating unlocked something, and that wasn't introduced until the mid-80s. Uh, and right when sort of the golden age of porn was dying down. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, as such, now we could have films that were a little bit more adult, but uh, it's kind of young enough that like a teenage audience well, would still be interested. There started to be the, the quote unquote the teen sex romps, which varied in explicitness, but there also started to be like sort of the rise of the erotic thriller, many of which had that inherent irony where we're here to see the erotic thrills, but a lot of them were very like in the end of the day pro family values. Like yeah, Fatal yeah. Attraction isn't about like. Michael Douglas has an affair with Glenn Close and then they run off together. It's like, no, now she's now the affair is threatening the nuclear mm-hmm. family. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just saying ultimately it's what it's trying to do is say that it's scary to threaten the family with mm-hmm. sex. No, uh, yeah. And so, so like, so there's, there's, so there's, there's, then, uh, it just starts the, getting muddy and, no one, and some people stop was, having fun yeah, with it anymore. Mid 1980s, yeah. Ronald Reagan was elected president. There was this new rise of conservatism, and uh, sex was started to like leach out of a lot of mainstream entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rise of special effects allowed, and the post Star Wars boom mm-hmm. allowed for all of these big fantasy films to become uh, super duper popular. Yeah. There was and, a brief there spike it, in the yeah. early 90s. There, there was a, a spike, spike, yeah, thanks to almost single-handedly to Paul Verhoeven. Uh, uh, and, uh, and Sharon Stone. 
hand in hand. Yeah, and, I, just, uh, I yeah. just think she deserves a lot of credit for be, for being like that kind of a movie star who actually earned like a lot of respect. Yeah, and, for being an erotica mm, and yeah. transforming her career. She'd been around. She'd been acting yeah. for over ten years, and now all of a sudden she became like the sex symbol of the early '90s, thanks to Basic Instinct and Sliver. And she's also a brilliant actor, and she's really good she, in those she's movies. So good. She's Slivers, so good. Slivers yeah. crap, but she's good in she, it. She's like, been in a lot of garbage, but yeah. she's very good. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, right now we're sort of back in that 1980s for quadrant thinking, where we're going to try to reach as broad an audience as possible. And I think because of the ubiquity on por- of porn on the internet... Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that sort of has any nudity in it can now be taken out of context and put on the internet. A lot of people are just and not. So, a, yeah, so now totally any it. kind of sex or nudity is almost immediately equated with porn, mm-hmm. which means, A, a lot of actors are reluctant to do it, and, I, and understandably who, so. Yeah, who could blame them? Uh, and, and also... Um, open conversations about sexuality are now not to be had in the mainstream films. That's over in this other sort of online corner, which is really frustrating because now we have this whole slew of gigantic movies that don't have any human sexuality in them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to be fair, a lot of people, a lot of people like live their lives without that kind of sexuality. There's there's, asexual experiences that are important as well. I understand that, but uh, you know, I'd like to see more experiences uh, represented in these mainstream entertainments. Uh, I forgot who I need to look up the the author of the article, but somebody wrote an article specifically about the Avengers movies mm. called "Everyone Is Hot and No One Is Horny." Uh, <laughs> it's it's like uh, yeah, it's like they cast like these very good looking uh, men and they dress them really well and everybody looks really great and then these form fitting outfits and they're all you know muscular and there's usually like a beefcake shot of somebody taking off their shirt and there's no sex scenes like there's some mm. teasy weezy romance here and there there might be a kiss. But there's no actual, like, brazen physicality. And uh, a lot of people see that. Uh, a lot here of... we go. It's on Blood Knife. It's a digital magazine called Blood Knife by mm. R.S. Benedict. Everyone is beautiful and no one is horny. Modern action and superhero films fetishize the body, even as they desexualize it. There you go. That's yeah. And that's an excellent article. I recommend it. Okay. Uh, just in, in that we've desexualized our entertainment. And... Uh, uh, this article and other critics have seen this as a little bit to a lot of these films detriment, how they could benefit from more displays of varied sexuality rather than this uh, weird world where sex just doesn't really exist yeah. in any kind of capacity. Mm-hmm. It's like when, uh, when Tessa Thompson came out and said, Oh no, Valkyrie's bisexual. Really? In the script? Yeah. I mean, like you, where, you can't where, do this where, ex post facto super. Where, like, where is that demonstrated? Yeah. At, like at this, some this point. extra narrative, is like during the press tour it, and have that count. Yeah. Okay. With your relationship she's having, like you gotta, you gotta she actually put it in the say, text. Say dialogue. I am bisexual and there's no women around, so I'm not making out with them. And that's why I'm not making out with them. Or, yeah just have her make out with a woman yeah. on camera yeah. and take all doubt away. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the whole, uh, well this so, way, like conservatives or people who would be offended by such a thing can pretend it's not their vibe. It always yeah. pisses me well, off. It, you it's, know? Like, it's also a way to, um, to kind of get queer dollars. Essentially. It's like, we're going to have these characters. They're going to be kind of coded a little queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to sort of tease in press conferences that they're a little queer. And no, we promise Dumbledore and queer, is queer. Yeah, and queer audiences can go in and say, Oh boy, a queer character when they're not really yeah. not explicitly. And they're not the, allowed that, to that's... demonstrate who they are on camera. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you, that but you go back to the 70s when Richard O'Brien was making his burlesque stage performances with Frankenfurter from another uh, another galaxy. Or go back to yeah. the Vampire Lovers. Or go back to the Vampire Lovers or a lot of these sort of really salacious vampire movies. You'll find some pretty, uh, not just salacious, some pretty positive examples of queerness mm. just put out there. So uh, the Karnstein trilogy is sorry again, I had to rant. No, for you're a fine. Bit, you're yeah. fine. It, they're pretty easy to find. Unfortunately, like not all three of them aren't available on the same service right now. If you're you kind of have them. To, to sniff around. Yeah, to find them. you can find them pretty easily online. It's just a matter of like getting them. You know, doing a little searching. But um, uh, I highly recommend Vampire Lovers, even if that's the only yeah, one you see. It. Go see that. Lust for a Vampire. It's it's not great, but if you want to be a completionist, go right on ahead. And Twins of Evil is pulpy fun, but not amazing. Uh, Vampire yeah, Lovers is really would, what it's all about. Even though it's the second one, I think is the worst of the three. I would recommend that one over Twins of Evil. Oh yeah, just because Twins of Evil is, 
I know it's not really adding much to the conversation. It's not adding much to the conversation, but I think what Lust for a Vampire adds to the conversation is that shitty dude. Oh, <laughs> I, could, yeah. I could have done without him personally, but anyway. This this movie's insistence that this guy is somehow like lovable or a sex symbol just pissed me off so much. I hated him I so much. I have seen that in so many damn movies. I know, the, the, the but it boring heroes. And I, I find him I'm sorry, I find the boring hero boring. Yeah. I don't care for him. Like, I and this it, is, there's pro- nothing interesting yeah. about it. That, and then yeah. there's not a lot else in the movie to save it, you know? Like, I call it protagonist syndrome. Yeah. The, the protagonist has to be the one who learns a lesson so they can never be the most interesting person in their story mm. or surrounded by more interesting people. Mm. See also Tenet. See also the, the complete works of Dickens, for God's sake. Well, okay, I mean, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty common as far as fiction goes, but yeah. yeah. Tenet, his name is protagonist. Yeah. It's yeah. Anyway, that's it for episode zero. Thank you everybody for listening to episode zero. We went off in a bit of a rant there at the end. Uh, you can of course uh, enjoy other shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Well, uh, thank you for listening to the Critically Acclaimed Network. And uh, what are we doing next time here on episode zero? Right? Yeah, next time in episode zero, we only got a few episodes left, and we're going to be talking about a film that is really good. We're going to be talking about a film that I generally think is one of the best films ever made, period. Mm. Like, it, maybe not top 10, but top, like, 25. Yeah. Oh, and, and it, it's on a lot of lists, too. Yeah, this is this is not just me saying this. This is a very well-respected film. It is the only film ever directed by one of the greatest actors who ever lived, Charles Lawton. It is an incredibly stylish film. It is an incredibly influential film. That is a film called Night of the Hunter. And if you've never seen it, you are in for a treat. Mm-hmm. Please track it down. We're going to have a great conversation about it next week. I can't wait. Uh, it is a, it is a, it's creepy. It's creepy. Its connection to Rocky Horror is a little tenuous. It has a direct connection, yeah. but... Uh, it's a little tenuous, but it's a great... More a, than anything, this is just an excuse for us to, to get to watch The Night of the Hunter again. Well, and again, we're going to be talking, and it's very much explicitly about uh, sort of the hypocrisy of conservatism, mm. which is, of course, mm. baked into the very fundamental DNA of Rocky Horror. So uh, we'll get to talk about that, too. Uh, so, yeah, Night of the Hunter, next time in episode zero. Uh, if you want to contact us... If you want to perhaps talk about anything we discussed in this episode or anything else at all, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, you are also more than welcome to follow us on Twitter and contact us that way. We are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network. And if you like the shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, please subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review. Uh, but if you want more, you can get a lot of exclusive shows over at the Patreon. we got shows dedicated to Star Trek, shows dedicated to the 1960s Batman, shows dedicated to Disney stuff that is not on Disney Plus for some reason and nobody knows why. Mm. Uh, we got commentary tracks. Oh, we got to do that Hamlet one. Yeah. We're about to. We have this epic four-hour Hamlet commentary track. We're doing this month. It's going to be huge. Uh, yeah, that, we, that is, we're, we're doing a full commentary track for Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, which and, is four hours. Which long. is a four-hour film, gigantic thing, and it's going to be great. Uh, and uh, we do have only the best, which uh, we're hopefully recording sometime this week. Uh, and that is the podcast where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. It's a lot of stuff, and we mm-hmm. want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and any mm-hmm. of our other shows would not exist. So thank you to everybody. We couldn't do it without you, nor would we want to. Uh, and um, yeah, that's about it. Mm. Bye. I thought we were going to shiver. With? In, 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 tis it. No, we won't be doing that. All right. <laughs>